Case 1, Lockridge vs. Oakwood Hospital. On February 26, 2004, while walking to the school bus stop, patient Stone, a 14-year-old male with history of asthma, developed chest pain, had difficulty breathing, vomited, and syncopized. His father took him to Oakwood Annapolis Emergency Room, where Dr. Shipper the emergency room physician, examined the young man. The ER doctor concluded that Stone was suffering from anxiety and treated him with Valium and Toradol. The only test performed was an EKG. The plaintiff, Stone's father, contended at trial that given Stone's chest pain and related symptoms, the standard of care required that the emergency physician order a chest x-ray as the most likely cause of pain based on the patient's symptomatology was a pneumothorax. Stone had died in his sleep the evening that he went to the emergency department. An autopsy revealed an aortic dissection with pericardial tamponade. The plaintiff's expert witness gave the opinion that a chest x-ray probably would have revealed the presence of an aortic abnormality, which would have led to further testing, like a CAT scan. According to the plaintiff's experts, either of those tests would have allowed definitive diagnosis of an aortic dissection. Life-saving surgery would have followed. Dr. Shipper agreed that an aortic dissection could present with chest pain, syncope, and shortness of breath. However, he had never heard of this condition in a pediatric patient. Now, this brings us to where the law and medicine are different. In emergency medicine, we know that an aortic dissection is not ruled out by using a chest x-ray. However, 80% of chest x-rays will be abnormal in aortic dissection. The judge and the jury here found for the plaintiff because the law deals with probability. And the probability is that an x-ray would have been abnormal in this patient and would have prompted a CT angiography of the chest that would have revealed an aortic dissection. Dr. Shipper's attorney argued that because aortic dissections occur with such extreme rarity in children, the diagnosis was unforeseeable in this case, and foreseeability is key in malpractice claims. Dr. Michael Clark, the defendant's emergency medicine expert, testified, I personally had never heard that you could have a dissecting aorta in this pediatric age group. I went back and looked all our emergency medicine literature. It's just not there. And as you know, I recently studied from my recertification boards. It still wasn't there. There is nothing that mentioned dissection in a pediatric age group. Now, it is not good to have your expert witness come across as being arrogant. The jury, if it goes to a jury trial, will not appreciate this. And the plaintiff's expert disagreed with that statement. The plaintiff's expert testified that he had heard of an aortic dissection in a patient who was less than 21 years old, particularly in those patients with Marfan syndrome. Regardless of whether a physician knows that a patient has a connective tissue disorder, it's in your differential diagnosis of anybody who has acute 8 out of 10 chest pain 
collapses and has all the symptoms, including the sense of impending doom that was clearly there. And for me, I think this statement hammers home the point that a chest x-ray should have been done to rule out a pneumothorax. Medical malpractice we define as any act or omission by a physician during treatment of a patient that deviates from accepted norms of practice in the medical community and causes an injury to a patient. Once a lawsuit is filed, the physician has to deal with a whole new world of litigation attorneys where the goals, professional conduct, and procedures followed by attorneys are completely different from the rules of medicine. It's a foreign land. The claim of medical malpractice is a negligence that comes from tort law. And key to the idea of medical malpractice is the reasonable person standard. What a reasonable emergency physician would do faced with similar circumstances. This is the question that the jury must decide. Was what Dr. Shipper did reasonable as an emergency physician? That is the jury instruction. The jury must evaluate all the facts and then make a decision as to whether this physician adhered to the standard of care, which essentially is the reasonable person standard in medicine. A professional duty is owed to the patient. Two, there is a breach of the professional duty. Three, there is injury caused by the breach of duty. And four, there are resulting damages. Let's look at these four conditions. A doctor-patient relationship is a very basis of our duty to patients. When a patient hands over their insurance card and pays for their services, a duty is formed. The patient is giving the hospital or physician money in order to provide a service. And this has all the elements of a contract. The doctor offers services, the patient accepts the offer, and there is a mutual exchange of money for services. Two, there must be a breach of duty. All medical professionals have a duty to adhere to the standard of reasonable care. In other words, the standard of care, which is a legal term. The standard of care refers to the care a reasonable physician would render to a patient. The standard of care for emergency physicians is the care a reasonable emergency physician would render. The emergency physician we speak of is an emergency medicine attending that is board certified or board eligible in emergency medicine and has also done an emergency medicine residency. What would a reasonable emergency physician do? If the physician adhered to the standard of care, the jury should not find for the plaintiff. But juries, many times, whether or not a claim for malpractice is successful, is based on whether you come across as believable and caring. Three, 
causation. There are two elements to causation. One, the cause in fact, also known as but for causation. And we can think about it like this. But for the failure of Dr. Shipper to order the chest x-ray, Stone would not have died of an aortic dissection. Now, this is a stretch, but let's play it out. Now, 80% of chest x-rays are abnormal in aortic dissection, and the standard of care is to get a chest x-ray to look for a pneumothorax. So, 80% of chest x-rays are going to show some evidence of an aortic dissection. Now, whether that evidence is diagnostic, whether the x-ray findings are diagnostic, is another story. But this is how lawyers can play with statistics to get their point across and manipulate juries. So it makes it look like with an 80% probability, this aortic dissection would have been diagnosed by chest x-ray when the chest x-ray may have only shown a pleural effusion, which is one of the chest x-ray findings in aortic dissection. It doesn't have to be a widened mediastinum or blunted aortopulmonary window. So, but for Dr. Shipper's failure to order the x-ray, Stone died of pericardial tamponade caused by aortic dissection. So, Dr. Shipper did not order the x-ray to look for a pneumothorax. The x-ray would have shown some sign of aortic dissection with 80% probability This would have prompted a CT scan, which would have prompted a CT surgery consult, which would have prompted the patient going to the OR, which would have prompted the patient living and see how this logical chain is carried out. Next, we have proximate cause. The way we should think about proximate cause is by asking, was the victim's injury or or the plaintiff's injury a foreseeable consequence of the defendant's action. So this is where we get to foreseeable. So if something is so exceedingly rare that it's never occurred in a particular population, the physician is not going to look for it. And that may be reasonable. If a patient is having a heart attack and they present with pain in their great toe, with swelling, and that's their manifestation of a heart attack, it is not reasonably foreseeable that their symptoms were related to the heart attack. And this is what proximate cause is about. Were were the symptoms of the patient and the outcome reasonably foreseeable from the actions of the physician? And lastly, we have to have harm. Harm has to come from the proximate cause because the physician should have known or it was foreseeable that they needed to order this test to rule out this cause. The plaintiff suffered harm because of the breach of duty. The patient was harmed by the physician's action. Now, let's get into the pathophysiology a bit. For a type A dissection, the untreated mortality is currently 1% to 2% per hour, with a 30-day mortality close to 100%. 
if a patient is sent home with an ascending aortic dissection, it is reasonably foreseeable that that patient may die within the next 24 hours from that aortic dissection. Studies demonstrate that the absence of chest x-ray abnormalities makes it less likely that the patient will have an ascending aortic dissection. However, the chest x-ray is not a rule-out test for aortic dissection. What do we normally see? Widening of the mediastinum, blunting of the aortopulmonary window. The case outcome, regardless of whether a chest x-ray would have revealed a rare disorder in a pediatric patient like an aortic dissection or a more common abnormality like a pneumothorax, Dr. Shipper had a duty to conform his conduct to the standard of care. This is what the court writes. Even though Stone's aortic dissection was not foreseeable, it did not eliminate Dr. Shipper's duty to act in a matter consistent with the standard of care. And this next segment in the judicial opinion, I find very interesting because it is not at all how we think as physicians. Plaintiff need not establish that the mechanism of injury was foreseeable or anticipated in specific detail. It is only necessary that the evidence establishes that some injury to the plaintiff was foreseeable and to be anticipated. What does that mean? Well, the plaintiff did not need to establish that it was the standard of care to work up an aortic dissection in this patient. They needed to order a chest x-ray to look for a pneumothorax, which likely would have found the aortic dissection. And when they say it is only necessary that the evidence establishes that some injury. So even though they weren't looking for an aortic dissection with the chest x-ray, since it would have shown it and the standard of care would have been to order a chest x-ray in this patient, the court found that the defendant breached the standard of care. The court uses this example. If a patient presented with symptoms of a stroke and the physician did not order a CT scan or MRI, and the patient was later found to have a brain tumor, would it not be medical malpractice to have not done the neuroimaging in this case? While these are, while MRI and CT are much more definitive for strokes than a chest x-ray for aortic dissection, the point is that you don't have to be looking for the actual disease that a patient has for the standard of care to be breached. The court sums it up like this. The diagnostic process may yield unexpected results, as in this case, but an unforeseen diagnosis does not relieve a physician from liability if the patient's actual condition would have been diagnosed naturally and probably had the physician complied with the standard of care. So they're not saying you should pick up every rare disease, but if that rare disease is found and you failed to follow the standard of care in order to test to look for a more common disease that was consistent with the patient's presentation, that is also malpractice. The court finally said, 
emergency rooms fail emergency room physicians failure to order chest x-ray a 14 year old patient who collapsed and had chest pains and difficulty breathing was the proximate cause of patient death from aortic dissection an aortic problem should have been in the physician's differential diagnosis for patient an x-ray would have both ruled out the most likely diagnosis of spontaneous pneumothorax and supplied pertinent information to aortic dissection. Again, this shows that the court is not scientific. We all know that many pneumothoraces are not seen on chest x-ray because we see them on CAT scan. So we cannot have a rule out test if there's a significant number of cases where the test fails to produce an accurate diagnosis. Well, I think that's it for today, folks. I hope you enjoyed our first podcast here at ED Suits, and I hope you will keep listening. Have a good day, guys. Stay safe out there. ED Suits, the legal voice of emergency medicine. Case 2, Linda Mitchell versus Candler Hospital. It is alleged that Linda Mitchell violated the Emergency Medical Treatment and Labor Act, also known as EMTALA. EMTALA is also known as the Anti-Dumping Provision of the Consolidated Omnibus Reconciliation Act. So EMTALA is a provision within this act that was passed by Congress in the mid-80s. The facts of the case. Plaintiff Linda Mitchell presented to Candler Hospital. Dr. James Davis saw the patient and noted that Mitchell had a necrotic area under her chin and he also observed that she had an abscess with gangrene and burns to her anterior chest. He ordered blood tests and an x-ray of Mitchell's jaw. He also administered a painkiller, fluids, and antibiotic. Davis concluded that Mitchell was suffering from an infection. Mitchell decided to obtain a surgical consult prior to admission. He tried to reach Dr. Jackson, the on-call surgeon. Jackson was unavailable even though he was on call. Dr. Ruff, a plastic surgeon, actually came in to see the patient. After evaluation, he suggested that the emergency room physician call the patient's oral surgeon, who the patient had seen just three days prior. At that time, Mitchell had her wisdom teeth extracted and was noted to have Ludwig's angina by the oral surgeon. The oral surgeon discharged the patient from his office with Ludwig's angina, and she went home. The emergency room physician called the oral surgeon, who did not share the fact that the patient carried a diagnosis of Ludwig's angina. Dr. Davis presented the patient, and the oral surgeon disagreed that the patient needed to be admitted and asked that the patient follow up in his office that morning. So, it's about 4 a.m., the patient is discharged from the hospital. At around 9 a.m., the patient presents to the office of her oral The oral surgeon notes that the patient has breakdown of tissue from burn and Ludwig's angina, and that she now presents with what looks like necrotizing fasciitis, with huge areas of necrotic tissue present descending into either side of the mediastinum 
down into the chest area. The oral surgeon immediately sent Mitchell to St. Joseph's Hospital. Mitchell remained in critical condition for several weeks. She needed extensive surgical debridement of the tissue on her neck, chest, and on her breasts. She developed septic emboli. She developed septic emboli that spread to her bilateral arms and resulted in amputation of her left hand. Mitchell asserts that Candler Hospital did not provide her with an appropriate medical screening exam because Davis never asked the oral surgeon the nature of his initial diagnosis when he did the tooth extraction. And she contends that Davis should have admitted her to Candler Hospital or should have transferred her to another hospital after stabilization. Mitchell's other contention is that the hospital discharged her in an unstable condition. So let's get into the weeds a bit, because that's what this show is about in part, to get into the legal nitty-gritty of these cases. So what is EMTALA, the Emergency Medical Treatment and Labor Act? It provides that if an individual comes to an emergency department, and requests an examination or treatment for a medical condition, the hospital must provide an appropriate medical screening exam to determine if an appropriate medical condition exists. If the individual is found to have an emergency medical condition, the hospital must stabilize that medical condition within the capability of the hospital or transfer the individual to another hospital. Hospitals with a specialized designation or academic centers, level one trauma, are obligated to accept patient transfers unless the acceptance would exceed the hospital's capabilities. Regarding consultants, physicians that accept on-call responsibility according to the medical staff bylaws and department rules and regulations are the responsibility of the hospital, not of the emergency department. So that's MTALA. EMTALA is also known as the anti-dumping provision because in the mid-80s, what was happening was certain hospitals in wealthier areas, or so the story goes, would not accept patients who did not have insurance. And as a result, EMTALA came to be where a patient must have an appropriate medical screening exam when they present to the emergency department and the patient must be stabilized to the best of that hospital's capability prior to transfer or discharge. If the hospital does not have a service and the patient needs life-saving therapy, whether it be a surgery, cardiac catheterization, or other treatment modalities, that patient can be transferred in in an unstable condition as the alternative is certain death or severe morbidity. So to summarize so far, we have a patient that was diagnosed with Ludwig's angina. She presented to a local hospital. The ER physician recognized that the patient had an infection. He planned to admit the patient to the hospital, and he obtained a surgical consult. The ED physician administered antibiotics, pain meds, fluids, and a plastic surgeon actually saw the patient in the hospital after the general surgeon did not respond to the emergency physician's pages. The plastic surgeon deferred the patient to 
The plastic surgeon asked that the oral surgeon that performed the tooth extraction three, day, three days prior be called. Three days prior be called. That physician was called, and the oral surgeon, who had noted that the patient had Ludwig's angina three days prior and performed a wisdom tooth extraction, felt, based on the ER physician's presentation, that the patient did not need to be admitted to the hospital and could follow up in the office earlier that day as the patient was discharged at approximately 4 a.m. After the patient was discharged, she presented to the oral physician's office. The oral physician noted that the patient had Ludwig's angina that spread into necrotizing fasciitis of her anterior mediastinum. As a result, patient needed extensive surgery where she had large areas of tissues debrided and after she developed septic emboli to her bilateral arms and her left hand was amputated as a result. The plaintiff alleges that Candler Hospital did not provide an adequate medical screening exam and did not stabilize her prior to discharge. Candler Hospital moved for summary judgment. Summary judgment is a decision that's made based on statements and evidence without going to trial. So the judge makes a decision based on the depositions, the medical record, expert witness statements, etc. without the case going to a jury. Summary judgment is designed to be a final decision by a judge when a case can only be decided one way as determined by the law. The purpose of summary judgment is to prevent unnecessary trials that are costly, often burdensome. The summary judgment process has five steps. So we have a moving party. So in this case, Candler Hospital moves for summary judgment. Summary judgment has five steps. First, the moving party, in this case, Candler Hospital, moving just means the party that is initiating the lawsuit has to submit a motion before the court for summary judgment. At the summary judgment hearing, the moving party files and serves a memorandum of points and authority, which is their legal grounds for the motion of summary judgment, which is their legal grounds for the motion for summary judgment. They make their case that there are no triable issues of material fact, and that even if there were, there would be no way that the plaintiff could possibly succeed in court. The other party is allowed to respond, so Mitchell can then respond after Candler Hospital moves for summary judgment. Mitchell has to show that there is evidence that would make a judgment premature because there are multiple versions of fact that exist. A judge makes decisions based on the law. A jury makes decisions based on the facts. So the job of the court is to instruct the juries. So the job of the court is to instruct the jury what the law is. And then the jury has to apply the law to the specific case facts. And the judge says, if no rational jury could possibly find for Mitchell, based on the law, the motion by Candler Hospital must be granted. In other words, it's clear from the facts that Candler Hospital did not violate MTALA. If that is the case, 
then there is no triable issue of material fact, and the judge should grant the motion for summary judgment by Candler Hospital. If Mitchell can show that there is triable evidence that more than one version of the facts exist, the judgment of the, the motion for summary judgment should be denied. When a motion for summary judgment is granted, the case against the moving party ends. If the motion is denied and no settlement between the party is agreed to, the next step is to go to trial. So the plaintiff alleges that Candler Hospital should have admitted the patient or transferred her to a different facility where appropriate treatment could be rendered. In this case, the outcome was for Candler Hospital, and the motion for summary judgment was granted, and the plaintiff's case dismissed. The reasons are that what constitutes an appropriate screening exam is properly determined not by reference to particular outcomes, but to hospital standard operating. So whether or not a patient was misdiagnosed and suffered as a result is perhaps a malpractice case. But this was a case for violation of MTALA. The court rules that if Candler Hospital had some way administered care that it would not have administered to another patient, essentially discriminated against Mitchell, then that would be an MTALA violation. But if the patient had a standard screening exam, and was stabilized in the eyes of the emergency physician, then there is no case for an MTALA violation. The medical record revealed that the emergency physician elicited Mitchell's medical history, ordered lab work, including blood work, x-rays, consulted with doctors, including Mitchell's treating physician, administered antibiotics, fluids, pain medicine, and other drugs. And Mitchell did not claim Candler Hospital's emergency room doctors normally perform screening exams in a different manner. And because she did not allege that the screening procedure in question differed in any respect from that generally employed by the hospital, Mitchell's claim failed and Candler Hospital was granted a motion for summary judgment. Also, Mitchell claims that Candler Hospital discharged her prior to stabilization. Now, what is stable versus unstable? A medical condition that defines instability is a condition that places the health of the individual in serious jeopardy and can result in serious impairment to bodily functions and serious dysfunction of any bodily organ. However, the condition must be recognized to be an emergency by the treating physician. So if an emergency room physician does not recognize that a patient has an emergent condition and provides a proper medical screening exam and to the best of their knowledge discharges or transfers a patient that is found to be unstable that they initially thought was stable, there is no MTALA violation. Clearly in this case there was an emergency medical condition that needed aggressive stabilization. The court states that the emergency room physician did not determine that an emergency medical condition existed when Mitchell presented herself to Candler Hospital. The emergency room physician did not determine that an emergency medical condition existed when Mitchell presented herself at Candler Hospital on March 4, 1990. And because Mitchell does not allege that Candler Hospital treated her differently than any other emergency room, court 
found that Candler Hospital provided Mitchell with an appropriate medical screening exam and that they did not determine that the patient was suffering from an emergency medical condition that needed further stabilization. Therefore, the motion for summary judgment by Candler Hospital was granted. Now, let's talk about a few things regarding necrotizing fasciitis. The early signs of necrotizing fasciitis are classically pain out of proportion to physical exam, ecchymoses, necrosis of the skin, crepitus, cutaneous anesthesia or numbness, and bullae and blisters, which may be hemorrhagic. There's often foul-smelling discharge, and on x-ray or CT now, there may be gas in the soft tissue. However, please remember that only approximately 50% of necrotizing fasciitis patients will have gas in the soft tissue. So you cannot rule in or rule out necrotizing fasciitis based on an x-ray finding or a CT finding because clostridia is the gas-forming organism. There are other organisms that cause necrotizing fasciitis that do not produce gas. You have type 1, which is polymicrobial, type 2, which is caused by beta-hemolytic strep. Type 3 is the clostridia species, which causes gas gangrene. And then there are other vibrio species, fungal, and whatnot that constitute type 4. So in this case, we have a patient that had signs of an abscess with gangrene and boli to her anterior chest. And implicit in the surgical consultation is that this patient may have a necrotizing infection. So the Emergency Medical Treatment and Labor Act is a federal law that requires anybody who comes to the ER to be stabilized and treated regardless of their insurance status or ability to pay. It requires that an emergency department render a medical screening exam to determine whether emergency medical condition exists. And hospitals with specialized capabilities are obligated to treat transfers from hospitals who lack a capability to treat. Okay, so this patient had these hemorrhagic boli gas gangrene and was noted to have an infection and a surgical consultation was called. Now, if I was arguing this case before the court, the facts that stick out in my mind are the fact that the patient had boli to her anterior chest with areas of necrosis under her chin. That constitutes an emergency condition. That constitutes an emergency medical condition. And I believe an attorney could argue that by recognizing that the patient had necrosis under her chin, calling a surgeon and administering antibiotics, it was recognized that this patient likely had a necrotizing infection that would require surgery. Clearly, this type of patient is not stable and should not be discharged. This gets us to the point where we have to talk about the oral surgeon. Now, the oral surgeon never saw the patient. And even though a surgeon did see the patient and recommended that the ER physician call the patient's oral surgeon, nowhere does it say that this surgeon who actually saw the patient thought that the patient was stable for discharge. And a phone conversation with a consultant does not get you off the hook for medical malpractice or an entire violation. I would argue that because the patient had necrosis under her chin, 
a necrotic infection is clearly a medical emergency. And the emergency physician knew this because they called the surgical consultant for a skin infection, whereas routine practice is to not consult a surgeon for routine soft tissue infections or routine cellulitis. So the physician was obviously concerned enough about a necrotizing infection, which he recognized and then sent home. So I think that this case could be argued the other way and that this probably was an EMTALA violation. Now, the ER physician likely had the best intentions in mind. He felt that the patient was going to see the oral physician earlier that morning and that care would be rendered shortly. But you have to think about the legal implications of what happens. This is a necrotizing infection that is rapidly spreading. And the patient suffered severe consequences as a result of treatment delay. Now, was it the six hours or the three days prior that the treatment delay is irrelevant? Whether it was six hours prior or three days prior, it's irrelevant for EMTALA. The main issue is, is that the ER physician recognized that there was a necrotizing infection and gangrene was present. And I would press the CR physician as a plaintiff attorney and ask him if he thought that an infectious process that induces gangrene, I would ask this physician if he thought that it was an emergency when a cellulitis becomes gangrenous and starts to present. I would argue to this physician that if I was the plaintiff attorney, I would argue that this patient had a necrotizing infection. You recognized that there was gangrene and that there were bullae to the anterior chest. And you knew that the patient had a tooth extraction earlier that week. You didn't know that the patient had Ludwig's angina, but you were concerned enough about this infection to call a surgeon. And do you call surgical consultants for routine soft tissue infections? So I think there's more than enough in this case where a good attorney could argue that this ER physician recognized that there was an emergent condition present and that he sent the patient home because he spoke to the patient's doctor and he figured that the patient would be okay to see the doctor in the morning and that further treatment could be rendered from there. But no, this is not okay. You have to advocate and admit that patient. You never send a patient with necrotizing fasciitis, although it stated that he knew there was gangrene and a competent physician understands that this may be a surgical process. And this physician knew it. And that's why he called the surgical consult. I think you can make an argument that this was an MTAL violation. And we have to be careful. When consultants state that we can send a patient home and they have not even examined the patient. Had the surgeon come in and examined his patient, there is no way he would have sent that patient home and he would have recognized that the patient had necrotizing fasciitis, which he did when she went to the office, based on your imaging. You are the ultimate decision maker, and you have to advocate and make sure that the patient is treated appropriately. If this patient cannot be stabilized by you, and that oral surgeon who saw the patient is refusing to come in, you need to transfer that patient or call another doctor or administration and advocate 
for that patient because this patient lost their hand. And while it is unlikely to be the fault of the emergency physician that the plaintiff lost their hand, nevertheless, the patient was discharged with necrotizing fasciitis that, and the evidence presented indicates that the emergency physician knew that the patient had a necrotizing infection and discharged the patient anyway. If I were the attorney, I would ask, doctor, is it your routine practice to call a surgeon for all skin infections? And if the answer were no, is it your practice to call a surgeon for necrotizing skin infections? Yes. Well, doctor, you noticed that there was an area of necrosis under the patient's chin and whatever infection was spreading to her anterior chest. So the medical record indicates that there was necrotic tissue. Is that why you called the surgeon? If the answer is yes, well, it looks like you recognize that the patient had a necrotic infection, and it seems that you understand that necrotic infections can be life-threatening, which was the reason you called a surgeon, and you felt the patient was stable for discharge with an infection you recognized as being necrotic. If the answer is yes, how can the emergency physician make the claim that he did not know that this patient was suffering from an emergency medical condition. We don't normally call surgeons for routine cellulitis. We call them when we're concerned that the patient needs to go to the OR for surgical debridement of a necrotizing infection. And this physician did a disservice to this patient by not insisting that the surgeon come in and evaluate the patient. Because if he would have come in then he would have seen what he saw six hours later in his office, and the patient would have never been discharged from the hospital. Rather, the patient would have likely been taken straight to the OR for surgical debridement of her infection, and the question of whether there was an EMTALA violation would not be at issue in this case. Well, that's all I have for today, folks. Remember, you're listening to ED Suits, the legal voice of emergency medicine.